And so we have this situation where it becomes clear that they can't stop the bomber. The fighter planes have not been able to reach the bomber and they've crashed into the sea. We've got some of the sort of the warhawks who are demanding that the president launches all of the bombers, all of the missiles. This might have been an accident, but they can take advantage of this accident and wipe off the Soviet Union from the map. But there's a lot of decent human beings in this movie who are struggling with this idea of mass murder. Welcome to the special holiday movie marathon episode of My Nuclear Life. I'm Shelley Lesher. Today, I'm joined by our friends Nathan Radke and Lee Cohn from the Uncover Up podcast. Hopefully, you've listened to the previous episode where we discussed a vast array of nuclear movies and decided to analyze one movie each. Nathan chose the original 1964 version of Failsafe. Lee decided on the classic Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, also from 1964. And I decided on the TV movie The Day After from 1983. I have no idea how we thought it possible to condense all of these movies into a one-hour episode. We landed up spending the entire afternoon laughing and, well, pausing in horror over these movies. Don't worry, I won't subject you to all of our antics, but I will split the content into three episodes. The first one is going to cover Failsafe with some comparison to Dr. Strangelove. That's this episode. If you haven't watched these yet, you might want to before you continue. In the next day or so, I'll drop the next episode where Lee has an interesting thesis on Dr. Strangelove. This is a lot of content already, so I've decided to throw the third episode up on our Patreon page. The day after will be discussed with some comparison to the English equivalent threads. There are many ways to support this podcast, including listening to us, thank you very much, telling a friend, and rating and reviewing us on your podcatcher. If you would like to do more, at Patreon, you can support us for as little as $1 a month and receive stickers and other items from us. At the $5 a month level, you receive bonus content, including this full-length episode on the day after. Visit our webpage at MyNuclearLife.com for more information on how to sign up. Right, so grab some popcorn, settle in. Here we go. Let us sort of dive into basically if someone had filmed my childhood nightmares, I think the, the next hour would sort of represent that pretty well. So before I discuss the film Failsafe, I want to bring up a concept that's sort of crucial to understanding the Cold War and why, for the most part, it stayed cold. And that concept is equilibrium. The Cold War was a balancing act between the Soviets and the Americans. Whenever that balance was jostled, that's when we were in the most danger of nuclear annihilation. When America placed missiles in Turkey, it causes an imbalance that results in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Some of the most dangerous days of the Cold War were in the final years when the Soviets were panicking over the possibility that the U.S. was working on the Star Wars project. So we were on a, a tightrope over a chasm during the Cold War, and one of the only things keeping us from toppling over was maintaining our balance through equilibrium. So that idea of equilibrium is crucial to this film. 
very quickly, background info. It's directed by Sidney Lumet, also did 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, Network, real dialogue-heavy films. And this is a film that's almost entirely based on dialogue. It's based on a 1962 novel of the same name by Eugene Burdick and Harvey Wheeler. It's a very sparse film. It's black and white, no music. At times, there's no sound. It's just completely eerily silent, almost no special effects. It's stripped down. It feels almost like a play rather than a film. The whole thing takes place in one day and almost totally at three locations. I was going to ask, has this ever been made into a play? Because it could easily be. It must have. You would basically just need a bunch of chairs and a bunch of decent actors. It could be a radio play. This is not a visual film. And I didn't realize until you mentioned it that there's no music. Nope, not, not one bit of music in the entire film, which causes kind of an interesting realism. It's very rare that you get this much silence as you do in this film when you're watching a movie. So it opens with a man having a nightmare of a matador goring a bull. He gets out of bed, checks on his wife and his kids, and in these opening moments, we're sort of presented with a a decent but haunted man who clearly loves his family. Turns out that he's an Air Force general named Warren Black. His wife wakes up and he tells her he wants to resign, although he's worried it's too late for him to resign. She tries to convince him to take the day off, but he has an important meeting in the war room later that day. This sort of tension between what an individual human wants to do and what structure dictates they have to do is a motif that's going to run through this entire film, basically constantly. So he leaves and he takes off an airplane to fly to Washington, D.C. And as he flies off, we can see that he lives in New York City. The scene then changes to a fancy cocktail party that's clearly been going on all night. One of the people there is the center of attention, a well-spoken professor named Grotichella. Grotichella? It's unfortunate that his name is so hard to say, considering how important he is to this film. He's played very well by Walter Matthau. The partygoers are discussing the amount of deaths, mega deaths, that would be suffered in a nuclear exchange, and there's a man there who's angrily debating with Grotichella about whether a nuclear war can even be won. And we have this amazing exchange. Grotichella says, I say 60 million is perhaps the highest price we should be prepared to pay in a war. And the angry man rhetorically says, what's the difference between 60 million dead and 100 million dead? And Grotichella responds non-rhetorically, 40 million. The angry man argues that 60 million lives is still way too high a price to pay and that nuclear war has to be avoided at all costs. Then we get that classic line, in a nuclear war, everyone loses. But Grotichella maintains that thermonuclear war is like any other war and that there's going to be a winner and a loser and you're better off being the winner. The angry man gets angrier and Grotichella stays calm and calculating. These references the character makes to winning and losing indicate that we're obviously supposed to draw a clear analog to the game theorists who were so influential during this period of the Cold War. People like John von Neumann and Hermann Kahn, who I think will probably show up again in this episode. After speculating that only convicts and file clerks would survive a nuclear exchange, since they would both be groups insulated in fireproof rooms, and then wondering whether the violence of the convicts or the organizational abilities of the file clerks would win out in a post-apocalyptic world, Grotoshoa chuckles and says, it's fun to play around with. And then he leaves for the same Pentagon meeting that General Black was headed to. This is a question I wanted to ask. Who would win? Who would win in a nuclear war? Or between the file clerks and the prisoners. Oh. File clerks or prisoners. I think short-term prisoners, long-term file clerks. 
because I think in the short term, the violence would make initial gains. But I think in the long term, you have to have the organization in order to have really impressive levels of violence that you would need in order to survive a post-apocalyptic world. And a lot of prisoners are file clerks who got caught doing shenanigans, whereas the file clerks probably didn't get caught. So I'm edging with the file clerks there. There's a little chink in the armor here, which is only the worst of the worst of the criminals are going to survive because they're deep in the basement of the prison. How are they going to get out? Ah, Yeah, because you'd want the prison to be damaged enough so that you could sort of crawl your way out of it, but not damaged so much that it would just bury you alive. Right. And so all of the prison file clerks are going to be up on the top because they're not going to be in solitary confinement part of the maximum security prison. They're going to be in like light prisons, which are just going to be destroyed. So we're talking about solitary confinement that's going to survive. And are they even going to be able to get out of the prison in the first place? Yeah. I mean, anybody who does, they're clearly they've established themselves to be excellent survivors and also tremendously lucky if that's a quality that a person can possess. But it doesn't matter anyway, because they leave and then they're irradiated. And so what they we're talking about like a week survival at best, no? But what a week it would be. <laughs> Party with the file clerks and the prisoners. <laughs> so these kind of detached calculations that we're making here, and the kind of detached calculations that Grotoshell is making in the film over the deaths of millions of people, it might seem exaggerated. But basically, this is like the essence of Cold War game theory, using detached calculations, thought experiments, and equations to figure out the best way to win something that appears unwinnable. And this is a party game. Like, we're playing a party game about what two parties are going to win in this short-term survival file clerks versus convicts. Yeah. Walter Matthau's character, Godoshella, it really made me mad during the movie, like he was able to get under my skin because of this kind of logic, this kind of cold calculating logic about the difference between 100 million dead and 60 million dead is 40 million. And you really get a sense sometimes pouring over the files of decision makers of the 60s that these really were the ways that they approached some of these questions. And the kind of smugness and arrogance, which he exudes, just made me want to wring his neck. I was so angry, but it was a really stellar performance because I really do think he captures some of that kind of smugness of, well, we've got the bomb, we've got liberty, and we have the right to do whatever we want in order to ensure our political system survival. Yeah. And and as far as being furious with this exaggerated character, I'm not sure how exaggerated this character is. Like, I'll give you a famous quote from the real-life John von Neumann. With the Russians, it's not a question of whether, but of when. If you say, why not bomb them tomorrow, I say, why not today? If you say today at five o'clock, I say, why not one o'clock? How did we survive? How, how did we survive this? Wait, that's a von Neumann quote? Yeah, that was printed in his obituary. What? Wait, yeah. can that be printed in my obituary? <laughs> as, oh, 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 that's that's a pretty awesome quote. I mean, it's horrible, but... But as far as obituary quotes, it's like, that's a mic drop of a moment right there. It pretty much is, yeah. Lee, I want to agree with you on 
the Mathau character, I just wanted to kick him out of the room the whole movie. I'm like, yeah. why is anyone listening to this guy? Yeah. I know. Like, stop, stop listening to but him. But that's who was being listened to at the time. That's who had the ear of power were these these game theorists because nobody else would be able to come up with any kind of justification for any kind of nuclear buildup or war. The only ones who could were the ones who were able to turn it into a game. But it's not a game. These are 100 million people. That's real. Well, let's see. What is the U.S. population? It's about 350 million right now. That's now. But what was it back then? Okay, so the U.S. population in 1963 was 188 million. Wow. So if you lose 60, that's still plenty enough for you to consider yourself the victor of that exchange. If you murder a greater percentage of the other side. But you're saying you're going to lose half of your population. You're okay losing half. If you win the game, then yes. I mean, I'm not saying this. I find John von Neumann to be an extremely objectionable person and the Walter Matthau character to be extremely well played, but absolutely horrifying. Although I would argue that he does have like a moment at the end that redeems him just ever so slightly at the very end. So then we get a bunch more characters, Air Force officers. There's General Grady and Colonel Cassio. They're headed to an underground command center in Omaha for a meet and greet with a politician and a military contractor. We got some bomber pilots up in Alaska playing a game of pool as they wait for orders to scramble. And the older guys are reflecting on the old days when humors were more involved in the flying process. They complain about how things in warfare now are happening so quickly you can't rely on human reflexes or decision-making anymore. And then the men are sent off in their Vindicator jet bombers. Again, this main thesis of the film is really a strong thread through pretty much every scene which is this danger of handing over human decision-making to calculation. Also, very quickly, for all of the people who are obsessed with airplanes, there's no such thing as a Vindicator jet bomber. The footage in the film is stock footage of B-58 Hustlers. So then we've got all these Air Force personnel watching the bombers on radar and explaining the situation to this congressman who basically serves as the audience stand-in so that we can have characters explain stuff. And they're showing off all the high-tech equipment, and they're talking about how important it is to maintain the most up-to-date equipment at all times so that the Soviets don't get any kind of technological edge. And the congressman says that he's, you know, he's a bit worried about how computerized the entire system has become. He says, I'm the only elected official in this room, and yet I have no say in any of this increased automation of these defense systems. But the Air Force officers and the weapons contractors say that you know, it's just the nature of technology to respond to these situations. And the congressman says, but might the machinery create a situation? And is told by the general, there's always checks and counterchecks. Nothing can go wrong. We're really getting the main thesis of this film is being telegraphed at this point extremely loudly. We've had two scenes in which characters express a concern about the dangers of removing the human element from the decision-making process. And this is the moment where the sort of inciting incident occurs a UFO is picked up by radar in northern Quebec. So the automatic protocol is scramble fighters and send bombers to fail-safe positions near the Soviet border. They stay there waiting until the UFO is identified. If it's a friendly, you bring them back. If it's an attack, you send the bombers out. And because a human voice can be imitated, this fail-safe order to stand down or attack is sent electronically, you know, for safety. 
So what's the fail-safe order again? Just to be in a position? Yep, to basically be in this almost no-man's zone between attacking the Soviet Union or returning back to safety. And so they're sort of waiting there. They're in like the batter's box of nuclear war. And the question is, do you go up to a bat or do you go back to the bench? And it's mentioned that this happens a lot. Like, no one's worried. They're like, eh, this happens a lot, but we never move forward. We just turn around all the time and things go back to normal. Like, Yeah, one of the generals says to the congressman, this is a fairly common occurrence. And then the movie cuts to the Pentagon meeting, which is happening at the same time. Lee's least favorite person, Professor Grotoshella, is making a speech to top Air Force brass about the concept of the limited nuclear war. General Black, that sort of decent and troubled family man from the opening scenes, is one of the officers. And he's expressing doubt that a limited nuclear war is probably impossible. And even pretending that it's possible just makes people feel more comfortable with the arms race, and therefore more likely that there will be an unlimited nuclear exchange. And as the character says... Once those bombs start to drop, you won't be able to limit a damn thing. But Grotoshella continues looking at the situation through the lens of somebody who wants to win a game. He discusses minimizing maximum losses, the inability to control the opponent's actions, and the necessity of assuming the opponent is rational, which are all aspects of classic Cold War game theory. Whereas Black, the general, the military man, is looking at the situation as an imminent disaster. So they've also got a radar board in their bunker. And Grotoshella points at the UFO on the radar screen behind them and says, what if that was actually a Soviet missile had been fired accidentally? Wouldn't the fact that it was an accident make any difference? Shouldn't they respond like regardless with everything they had? Basically, you can't afford to even wait for a moment if there's even a hint or a threat of the beginning of a nuclear war because it would be so decisive because it would be so immediate and because it would be so catastrophic. There's no time for anything other than immediate calculating. It's a very talky film and the characters are all basically just stand-ins for various positions and arguments. So back in the Omaha bunker with the Air Force guys, the UFO has gone below the altitude that the radar can detect it. They raise the alert level. More fighter planes are scrambled. The bombers get to their fail-safe points And it's pointed out that they get there right on time. The system is working perfectly. And then just as the tension in the bunker is becoming unbearable, the UFO is identified. It was a commercial airliner that had gotten off of course. Lower the alert. Bring back the bombers. Everything's fine. Except something went wrong. One of the warning lights is still flashing. So they replace a component of the automatic system. And when that component is replaced, it accidentally malfunctions and sends the go-ahead message to one of the bomber groups. The head pilot of that bomber group is one of the older veterans, of course, from earlier who had been worrying about the degree to which humans had been removed from the decision-making process. So he tells his co-pilot to contact Omaha to confirm this order to bomb the Soviet Union. But the communications are jammed. The Soviets are jamming the American radio signal. They double-check to confirm that the signal that they're receiving is the go code. But because all they're doing is double-checking the error against the error, it looks legitimate. So they open their orders, and they've been told to destroy Moscow. And so now, back in the States, the generals, the politicians, everybody looking at these radar screens sees that, uh-oh, we have like got some bombers headed towards Moscow. And it's at this point, fairly far into the film, that we're introduced to probably the main character, the American president, played by Henry Fonda. 
Now, this choice of casting Fonda was clearly made because of his ability to portray decency and thoughtfulness. Like, this is one of the best fictional American presidents. He's a good man. He's got an even, calm, decisive temperament. He's the kind of fictional president you want in a fictional crisis. And him and his Russian translator are sent to the bowels of the earth to an emergency command center. At this point, he's given the option of sending fighter planes to shoot down the bombers since they have instructions to disregard any audio communications. He calls the Pentagon task for their opinions, and we get the opinions that you would expect. Grotoshella says, no, don't shoot down our bombers. Send more bombers. Let's use this crisis as an opportunity, a crisis-tunity, and, and launch a massive attack on the Soviet Union. Whereas General Black says, we have to shoot those bombers down immediately, even if it means that those fighter pilots are killed in the attempt as they run out of fuel flying over the Arctic Ocean. And this is one point that I want to say there's some similarities here between Strangelove and Failsafe, which is one of the iconic scenes, I think. When the pilots in Failsafe are given the go orders, they just simply open their vest and pull out their orders. But in Strangelove, it's quite different. It's a procedure. I love the how very procedural they are in that bomber. Like, they're professionals. Why do you have a checklist and then rattle off all this obvious stuff that you should obviously have done as a professional? It's because, of course, you make mistakes, right? But then there's also all this stupid stuff, right? Like gum. Yeah, gum. I love that. Was there lipstick? or Lipstick. (laughs) You could have a good time in Vegas with these things, boys, says Major Kong. Slim Pickens. Yeah, Slim Pickens is brilliant in that role. But having said that, there are so many comparisons between Failsafe and Strangelove. And I almost wonder if at this point we should switch and sort of go back and forth between the two. So we've set up the disaster for Failsafe. Yeah. And so let's set up the disaster for Strangelove now. Okay. The Strangelove is me. That was my assignment for this podcast. I was racking my brain over which movie to choose because we had a long list and then we narrowed it down to a short list. And it was actually, again, in conversation with my wife, where having heard what you guys were toying with choosing, we were like, well, somebody's got to talk about Strangelove, because it is just the iconic nuclear apocalypse film. Now, it is also by far the most popular one. And I'm sure that, Shelley, your listeners have all seen the film. And so I'm not going to actually talk that much about the various scenes in the film and things like that. I'll start out with a brief summary. Let me just interject that if anybody is listening and has not seen the film, stop the podcast immediately. Stop everything that you're doing. Pull over to the side of the road and start watching Dr. Strangelove right now. It is one of the best films ever made. Would you guys agree? Yes. Yeah, I would think so. It's one of the funniest for sure. Yeah. And just for that, there's nothing I can say that is going to top the actual film. So if you haven't seen it, don't let me spoil it for you. For the rest of us, I'm just going to give a very brief summary of film that you all know well, but just so that we remember what we're talking about. So it's released in 1964, directed by Stanley Kubrick. The screenplay is also by Kubrick, Terry Southern, and Peter George. 
The film stars Peter Sellers in three different roles. And actually, in the researching of this film, I discovered that he was also in a fourth role. He was also cast as the pilot who was then later played by Slim Pickens. But it, <laughs> he is in, this is Peter Sellers, he is in the mock-up of the plane, okay? And is having an argument with Stanley Kubrick and gets so animated in this argument that he falls out of the plane and breaks his leg, <laughs> which is why Dr. Strangelove is in a wheelchair, okay? It starts because Peter Sellers is actually recovering from a broken leg that he inflicted upon himself during an argument. And they then decide, okay, look, yeah, this is too much. Like four roles is clearly too much. You gotta, you're only going to get to play three roles. But I think the film is just brilliant for Peter Sellers playing three very different characters, very believably. And it also has, as fellow stars, George C. Scott playing Buck Turgeson, Sterling Hayden, who plays the Brigadier General Jack Ripper, and I'm going to get onto him in just a second when I do my summary. Slim Pickens takes over the role of the pilot, Major King Kong, and Peter Bull plays the Russian ambassador, Alexei Desadisky. And just one more mention, because there are a bunch of other great actors in it, but I'll just give a special mention to James Earl Jones, who is in the plane, later famous for Darth Vader voicing. He plays Lieutenant Lothar Zog. Okay, so the plot summary is that General Jack D. Ripper undergoes some kind of mental health crisis and orders a nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. Now, it happens that in the film, Group Captain Commander Lionel Mandrake, who was one of the three Peter Sellers characters, discovers what the base commander has done, that he's gone rogue, that he's not, in fact, acting on the orders of Washington, that he's decided upon doing this first strike himself. Now, Ripper locks down the base, and the movie is, in part, Captain Mandrake trying to contact Washington to abort this rogue attack. And spoiler alert, he does not manage it. And the final scene is Slim Pickens, that is Major King Kong, straddled on a nuclear bomb. It's iconic scene of him straddling this nuclear bomb and sort of riding it into the Soviet Union. And so the movie ends with the beginning of the nuclear holocaust. The rest is just implied. And actually, I see our three movies related in a number of ways. Dr. Strangelove is all essentially about the upper echelons of decision-making. It is the real game theory strategy playing out in movie life, I guess, in real life in the, in the film. Nathan's film, by contrast, is a lot about like the soldiers on the ground and how they're kind of dealing with being stuck in these large historical forces that kind of are sweeping them along. And then Shelley's film, I found to be very much the sort of, well, it is the day after. It's like when all of this has gone down and then the civilians are left there to kind of clean up the mess or, or actually face what has happened. So my film ends just before Shelley's film begins, right. in a sense. Now, because this film is so well-known, I don't really want to go through it scene by scene. Because it's so well-known, so many people have 
written things about it, said things about it. It's probably, you know, a thesis for every third or fourth film student in every film department across North America. So I struggled a bit on what was it that I could bring to this conversation that isn't just a kind of a sort of summarizing the film again. And in my research, I happened upon, well, I put it to both of you as kind of a question. The question is really, was the Soviet Union in some way responsible for the plot of this film? I put my question somewhat provocatively by asking whether Nikita Khrushchev, who was at that point the head of the Soviet Union, shouldn't maybe be given a screenwriter's credit for Dr. Strangelove. And because the movie itself has a subtitle in the title, you know, should Nikita Khrushchev be given a screenwriting credit or was Stanley Kubrick the victim of disinformation? Because, and here's the thesis, here's the argument that I want to present, the plot of Dr. Strangelove is the thesis or the main idea behind a Soviet disinformation campaign that began in 1957 and really ramped up in the early 60s. And that plot of the disinformation campaign is a bit what I want to talk about because I found the resonance in the film to be so striking. And even if I'm entirely wrong, because I've not heard anybody else make this argument, which generally puts me on thin ice, I still think that it gives us a way to talk both about the Cold War and about some of the salient themes in the film. So even if he wasn't actually a victim of disinformation, I think the, those themes kind of you know, help us understand the film. I want to first move back to Failsafe before you give us your movie thesis, which I think, Lee, perhaps you're in film school now and you're going to yeah. write your film thesis on Dr. Strangelove? I might. I might. You've inspired me. I think so. <laughs> if we want to just finish up Failsafe so that we know how it differs from Strangelove and this disinformation thesis... So there's a lot of interesting things in Failsafe that, Lee, as you mentioned, is surrounding the soldier. And Fonda in this movie, Nathan, as you mentioned, is a fantastic president. And at some point, they realize that they can't get a hold of this plane that is traveling to the Soviet Union to drop its bombs because they're convinced that the Soviet Union is attacking the U.S., and the president then has to contact the Soviet Union. Yeah, and it's amazing. And this is movie is so dialogue-based. And so many scenes are just Henry Fonda as the president talking on the telephone to the Russian leader who we can't see or hear. Instead, we're just getting translations through Larry Hagman, the interpreter, who also did a surprisingly good job in this. And so we have this situation where it becomes clear that they can't stop the bomber. The Fighter planes have not been able to reach the bomber, and they've crashed into the sea. We've got some of the people, the Krotoshelas and some of the sort of the Warhawks, who are demanding that the president launches all of the bombers, all of the missiles. This might have been an accident, but they can take advantage of this accident and wipe off the Soviet Union from the map. But there's also a lot of decent human beings in this movie who are struggling with this idea of mass murder. So then at this point, he tries to get on the phone with the, the Russian leader, and they have a conversation. And it is this fascinating struggle, this tension, because these two men have the same interest. They don't want Moscow destroyed. 
And yet, despite the fact that everybody shares the same interest here, there are so many structures, there are so many protocols, there are so many customs, there is so much culture that is interfering. They're going to have to share information with each other in order to stop this disaster. But the idea of sharing information has been treated as a disaster for the entire Cold War. It's the one thing that you have been like fighting the whole time to prevent happening. And there's so much distrust and there is so much paranoia that even though this is a clear example of everyone having a shared interest, it's very difficult to shake that kind of competitive game idea. And what that means is that there are several times when if they had cooperated more, they probably could have stopped the bomber, but are unable to. For example, there is a decoy bomber and the bomber with the nukes on it. And the American president says, no, don't go after the decoy. Don't go after him. It's just a decoy. He has no bombs. It can't hurt you. But out of paranoia, the Soviet military sends a bunch of planes after the decoy anyway, which means that they can't get the real bomber, which then gets through. And the ending of Failsafe, I think, is one of the finest endings in a film ever. Yeah. But there's a couple of other things that I, I want to mention, which is they are very clear about how well trained the U.S. military is. Like the bomber that gets through, they're like, oh, these men are so well trained. They're doing everything right. They're flying, you know, they get damaged, but then they fly under the radar. They do this, they do that. They want everyone to know how well the military has trained these pilots. Like that's definitely come through. Yeah, everything has gone Perfectly. And it goes back to General LeMay's theory, which is the bomber will always get through. Mm-hmm. Even though you had what started out with, what, six or seven bombers, one will always get through. That's like the whole theory. Yeah. And it's weird. Like, you can see the Air Force guys are cheering for the bombers to get through. There's some really weird scenes where, like, a bomber avoids a missile or shoots down a Soviet plane, and then the whole room cheers. But it's like, but wait. But they also cheer when one of their bombers gets destroyed. Yeah, that it, it becomes extremely bizarre. Like there is so much, they're so conflicted about what's going on. I found that interesting in watching my own reactions to watching the films is that I too was cheering for the bombers. Yeah. You know, like in both films, I was like, come on guys, you can do it. Like get out of the way of that incoming missile. And, you know. Because all the beats are there for them to be heroic. They're up against impossible odds, and, and you get to know the actors, and in, in all cases, the actors are very sympathetic. Yeah, and, and Kubrick even ups it for his part in the film, where he puts that patriotic music. Yes. Or, and you're like, come on, boys, let's get through. And what I noticed in that reaction is how as completely absurd and dangerous as that position would be in real life, you can be seduced into it. Yeah. Yeah. All it takes is a bit of music and some some swells of emotion. And then it's like, no, bomb that city. Yeah. In Failsafe, you want the bomber to get through. And there's no music, though. I mean, in Kubrick's film, you're more emotional even because of the music. But that yeah. theme is still there. The bomber's going to get through. The bomber does the same maneuvers that happen in Failsafe to get through. Right. And the same thing happens with the president sending the jets after it and the jets fall into the sea and they don't actually hit the the bomber. A lot of the same things happen. And the ending is very similar as well. 
a couple of different things happen, but one of the endings that made sense in in Strangelove after watching Failsafe is the pilots in the bomber realize that they don't have, and I'm ruining the ending for both of these movies if you haven't seen them. So again, watch the movies. The pilots in Failsafe mention how they're going to go down with the bomber. Yeah, well, what's happened is that one of the things the Soviets did was sent anti-aircraft missiles with nuclear tips against the bomber. And the bomber, following their excellent training, they dove to the ground. The nuclear anti-aircraft missile explodes above them, damages the bomber, and in the film, basically doses them with a lethal dose of radiation. And so at that point, the pilot says, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fly at 5,000 feet and we're going to set the bomb to go off at 5,000 feet. And so when Moscow's destroyed, we'll be destroyed, everything will be destroyed, because they would also have known there would be nothing to go home to anyway. And in Strangelove, then, when Slim Pickens rides the bomb down, that made more sense to me, because the bomber's like, we're going to go with the bomb, and then Slim Pickens accidentally goes down with the bomb, but it was the same thing, like, yay, I'm going to go down with the bomb. Yeah. That's right. And at that point, isn't that sort of where you'd want to be? Oh, 1,000%. At the opening salvo of a nuclear exchange? Yeah. We've actually addressed this in one of our previous joint podcasts, is that if this happens, you want to be right at ground zero where the bomb explodes. I am running towards the bomb. That's where yeah. I'm going. Yeah. And after the day after, you will understand why. Right, exactly. And so now we've destroyed Moscow in both films. In Failsafe, the way that we see the destruction of Moscow is, again, over the telephone. The president has asked his ambassador to stand on the roof in Moscow, and he tells the Soviet leader, I've got the ambassador on the phone. If we hear his voice turn into like a high-pitched screeching noise, that will mean that the bomb has gone off and the ambassador's phone has melted. And... It's amazing how effective that is to capture oh the God, horrors of the yes. destruction of an entire city just with a high-pitched screeching noise yeah. because of what that represents. And also, was it, I mean, I knew it was coming, but I'm still watching the movie and going, I hope I don't hear it. I hope I don't hear it. I hope I don't hear it. Even though I knew I was going to hear it, I still was like kind of hoping that the movie was going to have a happy ending. Yeah, maybe things will work out, but failsafe isn't done. Failsafe isn't done with you being sad about just the destruction of Moscow, as horrifying as that is. Because now we have the ambassador's phone is melted and Moscow has been destroyed and millions of people have been reduced to like just radioactive nothingness. But now we have an imbalance, that equilibrium that has protected like the entire world during the, the Cold War has now been tilted. The Soviets have lost a city. The Americans have not. And even though everybody knows at this point it was an accident, the Soviet leadership knows it was an accident, the military, everybody knows it was an accident, but they also know that this equilibrium has to be maintained or it's going to spiral into something even worse. And so the president sends his friend, General Black, that decent family man from the beginning of the film, into a bomber to fly over New York City. And he is told, use the Empire State Building as ground zero there was this many megatons dropped on Moscow, dropped this many megatons on New York City. 
And we know from the beginning of the film that General Black, the pilot of this plane, his family, who he loves, and his young children are in New York City. The president, his wife, is in New York City. And all of this is known when this decision is made. It seems so pointless. Like, it, it seems like, but how would that make things better? But within that trapped logic, and there is this discussion between the president of America and the Soviet leader, it's like, this shouldn't have to be what we have to do, but it is what we have to do. And so as the bomber goes to New York, back at the DC bunker, we got Grotoshella, Lee's hero, calculating the cost of the destruction of New York. He figures, okay, so those three million killed immediately, including people buried under collapsed buildings. Another million or two die within five weeks. But he says it's vitally important that we send in rescue crews immediately. Not to gather the corpses, that's pointless. But there's so many important documents of the many corporations based in the city, and the economy depends on that information. And this is the point when Lee's about to jump into the TV and strangle this character. And it's also the moment where Mathau, who I think is a like a superb actor, allows the character to break a little bit. As he's saying this, as he's talking about the importance of saving the documents, we see finally Grotoshella break and is clearly horrified and he betrays like a disgust and regret and then he just sits down and, and starts to mumble. And then of course we have General Black, the decent person from the beginning of the film, flies over New York, says it's vitally important that I am the one who drops this bomb. I have full responsibility. He pulls the trigger and then plunges a cyanide needle into his arm and takes his own life. And then we see sort of a flash of just sort of everyday random people in New York City, not knowing what's about to happen to them. And then the movie ends. That's got to be one of the best endings of any movie. Because it made sense. It made internal sense. But what it also does is point out that the internal structure that causes that decision to make sense makes no sense, which is, I mean, that's the summary of the Cold War. Can I just point out a historical irony with the plot of this film, which is that at least the thesis of the film is that we are safer if things are left to machines. Okay, no, it's not the thesis of the film. It's the thesis of the people in the film, like the game theorists, right? But while you were talking, Nathan, it reminded me of one of our joint heroes, Nathan and, and myself, Stanislav Petra. Oh, yeah, of course. Right? Okay, Shelley. So there's the three of us. So the time when something like this actually happens, it's September 1983. Petrov is a radar operator in the Soviet Union whose job it is to basically retaliate when there's a first nuclear strike by the Americans. He sees five missiles heading towards the Soviet Union, and he's under instructions now to return fire because, you know, if you send this up the chain of command, blah, 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 it all takes too long, and then, you know, it's already too late to do your retaliatory strike. And it was precisely the human element in the real world that prevented this kind of situation that both Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe depict. And this notion that some have in the film that you would be safer if you took the human element out. I'm glad that that has not been fully actualized or wasn't at least in the 80s because we may well have actually faced that situation. And well, that's certainly the position of many characters in Failsafe. That is not the position of Failsafe. No, true. I realized I needed to make that qualification as I was speaking my way into a hole. 
there's that, that part in Failsafe where the pilot at the last minute before the final run, his protocol is to call back to Washington. And when he calls back, they have his wife there and she's like having a very human moment and like just screaming and pleading with him and saying, no, you have to trust me. This isn't real. You don't need to do this. We're safe. There's no war. And you can see the pilot is, is weeping as he hears his wife's voice. But he's also been instructed that you have to disregard any kind of audio communication that tries to pull you back because that's not the protocol. If the computer has said go, then you go. Well, because the Soviets may have a device that could mimic, you know, different speech patterns. Maybe his wife was a Soviet agent the whole time even. That's right. You see? These movies, though, are still so relevant because in the new Nuclear Posture Review, they want to use AI to start modernizing our nuclear arsenal. We're going to be dealing with the same issues, right? Now everything's computerized, but what happens now when AI is going to start making decisions in our missile silos? I mean, we can even go much smaller when we talk about AI. What happens when AI is making our ethical decisions driving our cars? Well, we already know what happens there. If an AI has to decide to either protect the driver or to protect, say, somebody pushing a baby carriage. Is the AI in your car going to protect you? Is it going to sacrifice you for somebody else? We want AI because it can make decisions so quickly, but forget that we need to spend some time on some decisions. Like there are some decisions that we don't make quickly and those tend to be ethical decisions. I mean, as an ethicist, I'm a utilitarian, which is as close as you can get to being a robot anyway. But At the same time, by taking the human element out, we run this terrible risk that we see, I think, very well illustrated in Failsafe, that when we just believe the computations, we also then believe the errors of those computations because we lose the idea that a computer or a system could be wrong. As always, thank you for listening. What do you think? Does Failsafe have the best movie ending of all time? Let us know on Twitter at Nuclear Life Pod. Thanks to Nathan and Lee from The Uncover Up. Make sure you check out their podcast on conspiracy theories. For more information on our podcast, visit our website, mynuclearlife.com, ask us a question or send us a comment at mynuclearlife at protonmail.com. To help us out, leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm Shelley Lesher, and this has been another episode of My Nuclear Life.